I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. If you were with us, you remember that we began a study of this uh, well-known and much-beloved book last week, uh, and we will be doing so, looking at this book for uh, really uh, most of the, uh, many of the weeks between now and uh, Memorial Day throughout the, the course of the spring. Uh, we're going to look at it in, in, from different angles. Uh, the story is, is very well loved, but also it's so often uh, just glossed over uh, in the way that we tend to read children's fairy tales and, and other stories. Um, somebody has a problem, somebody recognizes the problem, they come out, and, th- and then there's a hero, and we, we see that uh, in Jonah. And not to say that that itself is wrong, but this book is, is packed with so much more. Uh, so much more that we can gain uh, perspective to understand God and to grow in godliness. And so as we began last week with an introduction of Jonah, my aim and my hope is that uh, we would look at this book and see ourselves in Jonah, including the foolishness uh, that uh, he experienced uh, or that, that he expressed. Uh, then we also would glean from his life and his circumstances. And so we're going to again read uh, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look from a different perspective this morning, the perspective of uh, looking at Jonah in the midst of the storm. Jonah 1, 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood. 
for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased, as, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly, belly of, the, of the fish three days and three nights. The word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this familiar word, we pray that you would speak to us, reminding us of the truth that we already know, enlightening us to truths that we may have overlooked, not only on the page, but even more particularly, uh, the truths within ourselves, about ourselves. Lord, help us to see uh, that we may recognize our need of you and your work within us. Lord, let us see that we may trust you, that you would be glorified, not only through our worship, but through our lives and our devotion. For to you belongs all praise, honor, and glory. We pray all of this in Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. Well, it is said that there are no atheists in foxholes. Apparently, there are not many on the sea either, at least not in this vessel, the vessel that Jonah jumped aboard in order to flee from God, to flee from the call that God had given to him to go and to preach to the Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh. And Jonah, running from God, turns and goes the other way aboard this ship. Uh, but then God raises up this storm so fierce that even seasoned mariners were afraid. And they panic and they pray. There's no atheists presently aboard this ship. Now, if we learn nothing else, we could even stop here and, and recognize this. Our God is no predictable, tame, and passive God, as he's often depicted, and as many just kind of foolishly believe that believe that God's whole purpose is to just help us to, you know, be our most self-actualized ideals of ourselves. God is God. He is in control. He made you. He made me. He made Jonah. He made those men on the ship for his pleasure and for his purpose, and he will do as he sees fit. And what he saw fit to do in this situation was to raise up a storm in order to reclaim one who was wayward. Now, the question is, is, why did God send the storm? Now, there's a number of ways we could probably answer that, but I think most fundamentally we need to recognize this is because the Lord determined this was the best way to show Jonah that he had a, a hole in his spirituality, that he had a structural flaw within his own soul. You see, Jonah was a religious man. Jonah was a prophet. We, we see record of him serving uh, the Lord, uh, prophesying in Israel elsewhere. Jonah was therefore very likely to have been a, a moral man and probably a, a good man by almost any measure. But now God's called Jonah to go do something that he really is not prepared to do, something he is ill-equipped to do, something he does not want to do, which is to go and prophesy, that's his job anyway, uh, but this time to the Assyrian people in their capital city of Nineveh. He was to go and proclaim to them their sin, 
calling them to repentance and then pointing them to the hope that is in the God of Israel, the God that he served. Now Jonah should have been very prepared to do this because this is what he does as a prophet. He reminds people and points to the living God. But Jonah was not up to the task of doing this because even though he knew the words, he didn't understand what grace is. He certainly knew the doctrines, and he could speak it. He had spoken it many, many times, but he didn't understand because he apparently had mistaken um, his own experience of God's grace as something that he somehow wanted, that God gives grace to people like him, and had given grace to him in particular to, to save and to bless and to make him his own people. And Jonah just kind of assumed God's grace because in his mind, it seems, God's grace goes to people of his particular religion, his particular ethnicity, or people who believed and lived the way that he lived. So of course, God was gracious to them. And, and he became so comfortable in all of God's covenant promises and God's provisions that he lost sight of the fact that God's grace is a gift, that God will have grace upon whom he will choose to have grace. And that even though Jonah had experienced grace in many, many ways, it was not something that he could ever deserve. So when we assume grace is something we deserve, we no longer make it grace. It becomes a reward, it becomes a badge, it becomes a trophy. And so Jonah really didn't understand, and so he ran. As we looked and saw last week, he didn't run because of fear of failure in this task. He ran because he was afraid of success or almost certain success. We look ahead into Jonah chapter 4 and we see the, the motive that Jonah had uh, in, in his running. He says to God, after revival has taken out among the Assyrian people, I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you would relent. I knew you would have grace on these kinds of people. And I don't want them to have grace. See, grace belongs to people like me. People who look like me, people who act like me. Not to people like them. Now, his motive for running is, you know, is rooted in his hatred of the Assyrian people. But it's a very understandable hatred. I mean, the Assyrian people were brutal. And not only were they evil and brutal to the nation's uh, that were around them, but they in particular had targeted Jonah's own people. They had targeted God's people, and they had not only been nasty, but they had plundered, and they had destroyed, and they had done reprehensible things to them. As I mentioned before, and most commentators will point out, the, the closest thing in our cultural mindset that we would have to this is what the Nazis did to the Jewish people in, in Germany and throughout Europe in the early part of the 20th century. It's no, not difficult for us to understand why Jonah would be so angered and so personally repulsed at the idea of these people receive grace. Maybe more immediate to us is imagine somebody who had lost a loved one, a father, a, a husband, a wife, or child in, uh, in, during 9-11. And then being told that you now need to go and talk to ISIS and explain to them that their actions were evil, but there is hope for them if they would just turn 
repent of their evil and trust in God's provision of Jesus Christ. We know that that's right, and sitting here, those of us who are not particularly affected and now 20 years removed, it doesn't seem the same intensity, but imagine what you felt like, remember what you felt like right after that. And then imagine you were somebody that was directly affected and somebody was to tell you that. You may know that it's right, but the motive is certainly dull within us. And so Jonah, uh, understandably, uh, was not interested in, in doing this thing. He was understandably filled with hatred toward these people. But what he didn't understand, what most of us never recognize is that when we are consumed with hatred for another people, warranted or not in our own opinion, it's usually because we are filled also, consumed by some form of self-righteous pride. So Jonah, again, seems to believe that grace belongs to him. He somehow was able to overlook all the things in his own life, most of which are not recorded, uh, the sins by which he had offended God, offended his neighbor, failed in some way to measure up. Those things he was able to gloss over, most likely because he does what we usually do. He started looking down the checklist of all the things that he does do. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I'm a prophet. Uh, I'm a professional, holy man. Of course God is going to have grace for me. Look at what they did. Now, I'm not trying to say that all things are the same. There are certain sins that are more evil and heinous than others, particularly as they hurt and uh, other, other people. You know, a, a, a kid who steals a candy bar from 7-Eleven, it is wrong, and the child should be disciplined appropriately. It is not the same thing as somebody who goes on a serial rampage and, and shoots up a school. We know that. We just kind of Christianize, we kind of say, well, all sin is bad, all sin is evil. Not all sin is evil, but all sin warrants death. And Jonah being able to overlook his own sin in order to say, I deserve this grace, in order to, but these people and what they did, um, they may need grace, but they shouldn't get grace. That comes from a self-righteous pride. And one of the things that we need to recognize this is to the extent that he felt superior is the extent that he believes that his that grace is based on merit. Somehow he warranted or he didn't forfeit it. And it's a distorted view of grace. Now, we need to not just look at this in Jonah and then learn the lesson, although we're going to do that a lot this morning. We need to recognize that that's true for us. To the degree that we feel that we are justified or the degree to which we are comfortable looking down on any other people or people group, whether it because of their economic situation, whether it because of uh, their living situation, whether it because of their race or their ethnicity, whatever the reasons that we might be prone to kind of feel somehow superior to some other people, is the degree to which we somehow have bought this idea that we deserve grace. They may need it, but they may or may not Get a warrant getting it. And it's a, an expression of self-righteous pride for none of us. None of us deserve God's grace. Now, as we look at this passage, and we're going to look more specifically here in a moment, one of the things that we need to recognize is this, that there was a very real sense in which God sent Jonah up for failure. It's not like it was a surprise to God. Oh, I got to, you know, go to the bullpen. I got my, uh, I got my prophet here in waiting, and I, I got these people that are in need, so I'm going to pick you, you know, bring them in, and I'm going to send you over there and then get shocked that this guy was going to run the other way. God was not surprised at all. 
So why did he do it? Well, it wasn't like Jonah was the only one who could go to Assyria and to preach to the people in Nineveh. So the effect that Jonah ultimately had was not because of his skill of, as an orator, it was because of what God did in the hearts of the people. And so there was a real sense in which God called Jonah, not just for those people, Jonah was just the vessel for that, but God called Jonah in order to expose within Jonah the flaws within his own soul. You see, until Jonah failed miserably, he would never really know what grace is. Until he saw how weak and how foolish and even how self-righteous he is. He would never feel his need of God and his grace and therefore he would never truly trust God because he wouldn't need to. I love this quote from Puritan Thomas Manton. He said, a man who is content with his own righteousness does not prize Christ. We may like him. We may speak highly of him. We may identify with him. We may want him to be our identity, but we don't prize him because we devalue the gift that he is and the sacrifice that he made. A man or woman who is content, who is satisfied with their own righteousness does not prize Christ. And that was the case of Jonah. And so this morning I want to touch on a couple of things. I want to look at the, the storms, the storm that Jonah and the sailors experienced as a reflection of the storms that we face in our lives and consider how we can respond whenever we are engulfed in the midst of those storms. Now in order to do that, we, I need to set this up. The first thing we need to recognize is that we all experience many storms in, in this life. Jesus himself had said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Then he followed up, but take heart because I've overcome the world. But the point that he is making is we're all going to have difficulties, we're all going to have troubles, we're all going to have trials, we're all going to face things that make us feel like we are becoming undone. That is what Jesus declared which in itself is a good reason for us to reject anything that comes from those who would try to tell you that the essence of Christianity is that we all be all prosperity and all health. If that was the essence, then apparently Jesus was wrong because Jesus says, yeah, you're going to have this. And he didn't say because of you. He just says this is part of life. Our hope is not that we won't have these storms. Our hope is that Jesus has overcome the world and we can rest and trust in him. But the storms that we will have, we'll have many trials. And in the storms, the trials and tribulations that Jesus is speaking about oftentimes are metaphorically kind of depicted as storms. We, we talk about the storms of life. Some are serious and some are severe. Some are a little bit uh, less, but nevertheless, we all experience them. And there are any number of ways that we can categorize them. I'm going to do so in, in two ways this morning, uh, just very briefly. There are the common storms, which is what Jesus was largely talking about. They're the storms that come and everybody experiences them. We know that from our own experiences, wherever we live, around here, when hurricane season comes, it's not like only those people who are you know, unbelievers or non-religious or a particular religion uh, experience the, the physical storm that is threatening for us or, or comes. They're just common. And just like that, life comes and every one of us experience storms of different types in, in our lives. It's just part of living in a broken and a fallen world. 
But there are also corrective storms. Storms that come into our lives because we, like Jonah, are not walking in the way that God has called us to walk, that we are rebelling. We may not be running in the opposite direction, but we've chosen alternate path, the path left traveled or whatever you want to call it, that sometimes may seem incredibly wise to us and creative, but it's not what God has called us to do. And it's not just that we've wandered and got lost off path. We, we know when we do this most of the time. And as a result, God brings storms into our life. Sometimes it's a direct consequence of our effects. Sometimes it's just something to bring us to the end of ourselves. And those are corrective storms. But one of the things we need to recognize, whether while we're looking at this or even thinking about storms in general, is all storms are purifying storms. All storms have an opportunity to correct our course and to shape us as the way that God would want us to be shaped. And so we all will experience storms in this life, but one of the things that we need to recognize is that the corrective storms often come to us as a means of God's intervention. Or maybe putting it another way, intervention, when God intervenes, it often feels like, uh, or comes in the, in the form of a storm. And when I talk about intervention, I'm, I'm talking about something that some of you may be familiar with, others of you perhaps not. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the group Teen Challenge. Over the years, I've had opportunity to work with them in, in different opportunities, but it's a ministry uh, that is geared to helping those who, uh, particularly teens, but will go into their early 20s, I think even some of them are 30 uh, years old, uh, but younger people who are struggling particularly with either uh, alcohol or, or, um, or drug addictions. And at times, the ones who are in need of the services of Teen Challenge to bring rehab to them are not particularly willing to participate. And so the families will call them or the families will be trained in what is called an intervention. You may have seen them on TV. You may have even participated. And through Teen Challenge, I've participated in some. And I can tell you this, even as a participant, no matter what the motive, no matter how much you love, maybe because the more that you love, the harder these things are to do. But often what will happen is that you will gather the ones who are the closest to the person who is in need together. And that person will come in usually not aware that they're going to be confronted. But they are now confronted not just with their behavior, but how their behavior is affecting everyone who loves them. And so therefore, you just hear testimony after testimony of, I see you doing this to yourself and it is breaking my heart. I see you doing this and it's hurting people. I know you don't want to do that, but you're just so self-absorbed in what you want and what you are doing and you're destroying yourself. And so love is poured out through the testimony and the person is confronted. It's called an intervention. And many times it's very effective. When we look at this passage, we see that God was essentially doing an intervention with Jonah. And every one of us is in need of an intervention at some time, or the storms come to us because we are in need of some form of correction. Think about it like this, is that most of us build our lives on certain goals and values. And when we don't achieve them or we don't experience them, it becomes frustrating. Even when there are significant challenges that we fear we may not overcome, we get frustrated with these things. These, these kinds of challenges are essentially the storms of the circumstance that are, that are challenging us. 
we have this, this frustration, we have uh, this anger, and now we're being confronted with our own limitations, our own weakness, our own inability. I heard it this way, in that kind of in a mathematical formula, the difference between our goals or our aspirations and our reality is frustration. You math people will get that quicker than some, it took me a while. But the, that gap, this is what we want, this is what we are, and that whole period in between is frustration. And that frustration is something that is painful for us, and we chafe, and we, we uh, get very angry. But God uses that frustration. In fact, God causes that frustration in many circumstances because he uses that frustration to bring us to the end of ourselves. He uses that frustration so that we are coming face to face with the, the reality of our own weaknesses uh, and our own limitations so that we, thou, will come to recognize our real need for him. And the reality is until we see that need, we don't see life as it really is, and we certainly don't see God as he really is. And so sometimes the storms come, like Jonah's experience, in the form of an intervention. It is a strong, you can't deny it, and it is face-to-face and is bringing it to the limitations. Now, it's also sometimes the storms are a little, a little more gentle, maybe more subtle interventions. Sometimes God does this, because Paul says this in Romans, sometimes God allows you to attain the desires of your heart. So you have no frustration. But once you get it, you still feel empty. You were like the coyote who that one time caught the roadrunner except the roadrunner had just eaten some pills that made him like 10 times bigger, and he's just so the coyote says, okay, I got it, now what? In this room, some of you are experiencing frustration. Others of you have everything, and you have that emptiness, and both of those are God orchestrating circumstances in order for you to come to the end and recognize your need of him. The wisest people recognize that continued success and breeds shallowness, and everyone, everyone who is successful has faced failure and frustration. And so we see that God uses the storms for a redemptive and a corrective purpose, not to undo us, but to allow us to find our footing again. But one of the things that we need to recognize is that it, it is not the storm that brings transformation. It is the response to the storm that brings the transformation. It's not the storm that brings about depth and wisdom and maturity. It is the response to the storm that cultivates those things. See, some people, when they are in the middle of storms, they they never seem to learn. Uh, They just continue to run, and they bring more difficulty upon themselves. Sometimes people will blame shift. They can look, and it's everybody else's fault that these things are happening, and they, they never uh, never appropriate them. They are rejecting the grace that could be theirs. And oftentimes when storms come, the people, and by people I mean me, but I don't want to say that, uh, but so people react like the alcoholic in the midst of an intervention. It's not fair. I don't need this. You don't love me. 
Just as the intervention person in the midst of the intervention may say that to the family members, how often do we in our own soul consciously or subconsciously say that to God when we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't like when our plans are not coming out the way that we had expected it. But we need to recognize sometimes it takes a lot to break through. What we see in this first passage is that Jonah responds correctly, not completely, but he responds correctly. You know, Jonah in the first few verses of this passage was a cartoon character who was worthy of ridicule. Jonah that we see here who's now facing the storm is one who has a character that is worthy of recognition and in some degrees of emulation. He has not been, and he actually at no point in the story does he become the, the hero that we often make him to be. If we look at the story and we read it and we say, I want to be like Jonah, well, you know, you haven't read the story. Um, but if we read the story and we see, um, I am like Jonah, now we're reading the story and we're reminded that we are works in process. But with this hope that God who began a work in us will see that work through to the end. And just sometimes, as God is at work, it feels quite painful. And so we see Jonah, there's a, we see the character of Jonah, we see the, the good aspects of Jonah in the way that he is responding, and we see throughout this a transformation, but we're also reminded by the story that that transformation is never complete in this, in this life. But we do see some characteristics of Jonah in this story that we can learn from. I'm going to touch on them quickly, because I know some of you want lunch eventually. I, I promised Jim B. Craft yesterday I would promise I would be done before noon. Anyway, um, which is less of a promise now than it will be when we go back to two services. But anyway, um, the first thing that Jonah recognized is, is, is we need to see is this, that Jonah recognized that his sin endangered other people. So there's this tendency to think that our sin is just affecting us. We may know that it's not good, but at least nobody else is getting hurt, and having that mindset uh, seems to fortify our, our continuance in this. But as we see in, in the story, the sailors on the boats, they weren't the only one on the sea, so likely sailors and other boats, and maybe even depending on how severe, and this must have been a severe storm if the sailors that were, you know, seasoned, um, you know, watermen were afraid. Perhaps it's even threatening to some of the people who were on the land. Jonah's sin was not just his own. All those people were in peril because of Jonah. Now, I want to stop here for a second because I, I think it's important that we understand this. Some of you may be facing storms right now because you are in the wake of God's intervention of some other people. And you can't figure out what you've done wrong. You, you're doing what, as far as you can tell, you're doing what you're wrong, and yet you still have challenges. It's not necessarily a corrective storm for you in those circumstances, but it is still an opportunity because you are coming to the end of yourself. You are recognized your need of God, and you have no other option. Well, you have two options. You can either cling to the promises of God, or you can try to fix things yourself. Those storms usually will come to an end in themselves, but 
if you don't seize those storms, even when it's not your guilt, as an opportunity to deepen your trust and your reliance, I guess it should go the other way around, reliance and trust upon God, you're missing an opportunity. But this happens, and so you don't have to constantly rack your brain and wonder what it is that you are doing. It's very possible that you are in the wake of somebody else's intervention. But I think even more important for us is to recognize that our sin may be the cause of someone else's suffering. It is not just about you. At the very least, you're causing heartache for anybody else who may be close to you, whether they are aware of it or not, because sin doesn't stay hidden. Sin has a fact, and that sin hurts people who are around us. Now, some might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Somehow I'm in the wake of somebody else's intervention. All I'm going to say about that is something that you've heard many, many times before. If God was to deal with us as we deserve for the way that we treat him and the way that we treat other people, we'd all be destroyed. But God is a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he never gives us what we deserve. He only gives us better, regardless of how we relate to him. We only get better than we deserve from him. And Job understood this. No doubt he, he knew the doctrines. He taught it, was taught it in VBS growing up, and he learned all this stuff. This is what God is like. And, and, but somehow it, what he knew here didn't measure here, at least not in the circumstances that God put him in. But he was beginning to understand how his behavior affected other people. And in his response, we see that he cares. He said that it wasn't right for other people to be endangered because of him. That was one of the formative things for him. We see admirable character in that. He does have a compassion for other people. And what's really fascinating about this is it's not like the issue was resolved within him at this point. He didn't say at this point, you know what? I'm being a jerk about these people. Yes, they're evil, but they need grace all the more. He just recognized he was in the first step. And it's a picture for all of us. It's not like we necessarily come to the epiphany all at one point in time, but there's something that wakes us up and he owns the reality of his own sin and that he needs to take consequences for his sin. Until we refocus our perspective, the world will be a very disappointing place we need to recognize that God has a purpose for suffering. No storm is senseless, but they draw us to God. And Jonah's initial response was to recognize his responsibility. Second, we see Jonah show signs of repentance. I say signs because I don't think that Jonah exhibits all of the signs of repentance, but he definitely is in the process. And, and that's, I think, what we can take and learn from this. Author Richard Owen Roberts calls repentance the first word of the gospel, which is actually the title of his book that I was looking for this week and I can't find, so if you have it, please return it. Oh, anyway, um, camper's already been cleared. So anyway, um, my eyes are on Tim Nargy next. But anyway, that's um, so... Um, but because of the first word of the gospel, because repentance and faith, they go together, they're both necessary for us. And, and so repentance is not something that we should take lightly. I had a bunch of other notes, it'll become a 
sermon in a couple of weeks because we can't go into the depth that I would love to go to this morning. But taking from another writer on this topic, a Puritan, Thomas Watson, he says this. Listen to what he describes for repentance. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Sight of sin, in other words, we now recognize it. Sorrow of sin, we know it's not right and there's this angst within us. Now, one of the things we need to recognize, and we'll talk about this, is sorrow itself is not the same thing as repentance, but there is no repentance without sorrow for sin. Confession of sin, acknowledging it before God and perhaps before other people. We see Jonah doing both in, in this situation. He says to the people, you know, it's not right for you to suffer because of me. The shame for sin. In other words, we don't want this to be our identity. We don't want this to be who we are. Hatred of sin. Recognizing that sin destroys not only people around, but it destroys us. And so we turn hatred, not towards other people or even circumstances, but toward the sin itself. It's not the same as self-loathing. It's recognition of the sin that causes us to do what we do. And so we hate the sin. And then ultimately there is a turning from the sin. And those are the characteristics. I think those are great uh, benchmarks for us to consider the whole idea of of repentance. Repentance is a grace that God gives to us by which we confess, by which our hearts are prepared to receive the grace that he is preparing for us. But repentance is very different from what the sailors want. You see, the sailors only want to get out of the mess, and so they're willing to use God and religion to get it, right? I mean, that's what we said. Okay, what's your God? What'd you do? What do we need to do to you so that this whole thing stops? And so whatever it takes, they're willing to do. They're not even practicing and believing in the same religion that that Jonah does. They're not Jewish people, but they're willing to become temporary Jews in order to uh, get the God who created the heaven and the earth, uh, the land and the sea, to, to stop this storm that they're on. And the reason that that's significant is because so many of us mistake this idea of penance. It feels so right, but the reality is it's so wrong. Penance is punishing ourselves or the sense that we have felt enough, punished enough. We've suffered long enough, so therefore we feel a little better about ourselves. I've paid the penalty for my sin. But do you see the problem with that? You and I can't pay enough for our sin. Our sin warrants death, so if you're still breathing, you didn't pay enough. And the idea of the appeasement of repentance, which seems it feels so right, dulls our sensitivity to the only one who has paid the price for us, which is Jesus Christ, who paid the price, and that we, through repentance and faith, experience grace. The more we live our lives like the sailors, although we don't look at the story and see ourselves in the sailors, but the more we embrace the idea that our suffering is sufficient to pay the price, the less we hunger for the grace that could be ours from the Lord. And we see here that Jonah is no longer focusing on himself. He he turns his attention to God. He's not focused on his problem. He's got this storm here. People are in danger, and he's realizing this. The problem hasn't gone away. He still has this hatred for these Assyrian people, but there's a bigger problem. And the only way to resolve the bigger problem is to turn where he should turn in the first place, which is to God and God's promises and what is right, which he bases on what God has said. 
He recognizes that there's something bigger than himself in his problems. He remembers God's covenant promises. He gains a new perspective and he says, okay, throw me into the sea. In other words, he comes to the end of himself. Now, I don't think it's complete because as I suggested last week, as I think that there is a part of him still that's saying, I would rather die than do what God has asked me to do. But he's not willing to jeopardize other people. He knows, and so there's a, it's repentance. It's a process sometimes. It takes a lot to break through to us. And we see the evidence of that. But that new perspective, at least for the immediate issue, is because Jonah turns his attention away from his circumstance to God, God's promises. And that changes us. And by reorienting ourselves to the person and to the promises of God, we become able to see all problems more clearly. That's what Jonah is showing us. And third and final with this is this is we see that Jonah then finds grace. So Jonah stops making excuses for himself. They're bad people. I'm not going to do this. He stops his own striving. God has a plan. I have a better plan. He takes responsibility and he says, throw me into the sea. And, I, and we're going to see, but you already know, so I'm not, spoiler alert here. It is when he's under the sea that he finds God's provision of grace. And so what we need to understand is this, whenever it appears that obedience to God is going to lead us nowhere, meaning obedience to God is not going to get us where we want to go, we need to recognize that underneath the waves of the storm that we're in the midst of, the waves of our circumstance, is where we're going to find God's gracious provision. Some of you are in the midst of storms right now. The rest of you will be some point. When God sends a storm into our lives, we can respond in one of two ways. We can respond like Jonah did. We can run, do things our own way. Or we can respond as Jonah is beginning to do. Turn our attention away. We can trust God, even inadequately as he's doing at this point. And we can obey in some way. Part of the obedience, the fundamental part of the obedience is to, and trust of God is this, is to recognize what Jesus himself said. Just as Jonah was a sign, so shall be the Son of Man. See, so Jesus embraced Jonah, flawed as he is, and said, see, there's, there's, in him we see a picture of what we all need to rest our hope in. As Jonah offered himself as a substitute for the sake of the sailors, Jesus offers himself as a substitute for those whom he loves. Because of his sacrifice, we have life. And when we turn our attention to that promise, regardless of the storm, it's storms that bring us back to cling to that. Sometimes it's the storm that brings us to trust in that in the first place. But the storms constantly call us to ask ourselves, where am I? And what's my relationship to God? And bring us back. And fundamentally, the answer is not in, what can I do to get out of this? But am I believing God and his provision? the perfect provision of Christ and all the implications, and the more that we're clinging to that provision, the more hope, more courage that we have to face whatever the storm is, recognizing that God will see us through for his purpose, which is always greater than our own purpose. And so as we wrap it up, I just want to ask this. When the storm in your life, whether you're facing it now or once to come, are you going to be like the early Jonah, first few verses? Or are you going to be more like the Jonah that we see emerging through these verses now? My hope is that we will be a people who humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. For the promise of God is then he will lift us up. Lord, we give thanks to you and pray that you would grant us the wisdom that is gained by the foolishness of Jonah. May we first see our own foolishness 
in him. And may we then do as you were calling him to do, as you're calling all of us to do, is to turn to trust you, to find grace that is sufficient for the situation, grace that has overcome even our own sin, that reconciled forgave us, grace that grants us life here and eternally. Father, let us enjoy and cling to that. Let us come to the end of ourselves and rest in your gifts, we pray in Christ. Amen.